Spanning the entire globe, involving hundreds of different cultures, explaining the same phenomenon by different names. The nature of the footprints, namely their remarkable consistency, their uh, biomechanical appropriateness, um, you know, those aspects that, that are, are extremely compelling. Hey everybody, it's Dana and Tim and, and, and Russ Jones. Yeah. Hey guys, how's everyone doing <laughs> Hey guys, doing today? we're just breaking right into Russ. Yeah, we, you know? Russ is family, so we figured we'll just kind of, he'll kick it off with us, but yep. tonight <laughs> we're, or today, depends on what time you listen to this, <laughs> we're going to, uh, you know, we, we were kicking around some ideas for some shows and Russ is so, for, and we'll have Russ do a, we'll do a brief intro on Russ mm -hmm. in case some of you folks are listening or watching us for the first time but russ we're going to talk about some witness accounts russ covers well we'll get into what he covers but we're going to talk about witness accounts yeah and compelling stories and mm -hmm. and then maybe some things just kind of make it all about witness reports this episode so yep. so we have dr russ jones with us our good friend mm -hmm. a very good friend mm -hmm. and uh dr russ do you want to just maybe i mean again everyone probably knows you but maybe just do the uh the you know the 30 the, second uh, intro on you. Yeah. The cliff note version. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's weird because I have never seen that disclaimer on your guys thing. And so I'm thinking they just literally did a disclaimer on me. <laughs> <laughs> the views that Russ Jones says may not re necessarily represent. The <laughs> we have to put that in just for you. Radio <laughs> and anybody else. What, what happened, Russ, is Alex Highcheck called me before we recorded this. Exactly. And he made that just for you. I know. That's exactly what I'm thinking. I yeah, have never seen it. one. Yeah. And I thought, it, oh, God. We started it with Brad, actually. Actually, it was, it was, it was, no, it was <laughs> a week before. So, yeah, it just popped up on our thing. So, I figured mm -hmm. we were supposed to be doing it. So, just in case. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. we're back to back. We've got, we had, we we just talked to Brad last week and mm -hmm. from, uh, you know, Brad Kennan from yeah. Wide Open Research and yeah. BFRO. And we've got Dr. Russ Jones. So, yeah. my counterpart version, Russ. Yeah. So, yeah. See, I have been interested in Bigfoot since I was a young man in a hunting family and had some things happen that later I believe were Bigfoot related. Although, although at that time, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Bigfoot. And it was in the 70s until Leonard Nimoy, like many of us, had his show and it got, it in, got us interested in Bigfoot. And since that time, I was very interested in Red and did everything. About 15 years ago, I drove up to see Dr. Jeff Meldrum speak. His first book was out then. I was curious to hear about it. Bigfoot wasn't nearly as popular 15 years ago. It was still, you know, popular, but not like now it's crazy. You know, you go to the conferences, there's <laughs> thousands of people coming through in a weekend. Um, Dr. Jeff was actually the one that encouraged me to write my first book, which was called Tracking the Stone Man. It did pretty well. It sold like 3,000 copies and Lauren Coleman you know, gave me some kind of award or something for, you know, I don't remember what it was for. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
I had interviewed 500 witnesses at that time. And then about seven years later, I did the second book uh, called The Appalachian Bigfoot, which was number one on Amazon for 17 weeks and has been a, you know, it's one of those things that you just can't reproduce. So after that, the publisher came and said, you know, can you redo your first book? So it took me 253 hours to redo it, add 100 pages, add new pictures, add new reports that I had. And people are like, it's great but I just like the Appalachian Bigfoot better. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that you just never know how it's going to work out that way. But about 15 years ago, at that same time, after I saw Jeff, I Googled Bigfoot. And in that day, instantly the BFRO, the Bigfoot Field Research Organization came up and I saw they were doing these expeditions and, you know, they had like 10 or 15 of them a year and you paid this money and you got interviewed and you signed non-disclosure forms and you went and, Back then, uh, Matt Moneymaker from the TV show Finding Bigfoot and the founder of the BFRO was at all the expeditions. And Matt and I spent the weekend together and hit it off. And after that time, I started doing all the reports in Ohio and West Virginia for the group. And that was my start in Bigfoot world, you know, so largely thanks to Meldrum and thanks to Matt for getting me going. And then now, you know, a lot of my very best friends are inside Bigfoot world and I'm still in the BFRO, still do reports for them. I would say that most of us that have done it for a while, we get most of our reports just from our own people rather than, you know, inside a particular group or something like that. But yeah, it's been a fun ride. Um, I always think, you know, every time I'm seeing patients and they come in and they're like, oh, so you're that one that goes, does the big food stuff or whatever, you know, because, you know, there's the books are for sale at my office when they come in. <laughs> and cool. I'm like, yeah, you know, and probably about half the time they have a story. They're always curious about it. And I always tell them, you know, who thinks that they're going to end up, you know, you go to school, you get a couple degrees, you get your doctor, but you're better known for your Bigfoot stuff. Right. I know. That's crazy. But maybe you should get one of the, you should put, and I've, I've never been to your office yet. We're going to get dinner maybe one time. Okay. My, my back's a little out of, out of whack. <laughs> he does more than that too, I'm sure. Russ, yeah. you should get one of those, like those life-size the things of you are like a cardboard cut in your office and you have a stand with your books in front of it. So when your patients walk in, you know, you have some kind of Bigfoot thing on here, on there. You know, in my private office, I have one of Snuffy's chainsaw, chain, oh, uh, chainsaw art, Bigfoot, you're six foot tall. And I oh, have cool. all these different magazine articles and stuff framed that, you know, I've done. So a lot of people will step in there or ask if they can, just so they can see all the Bigfoot stuff. Oh, cool. But, you know, it's I like here I'm in my office, at the house and, you know, you just accumulate, a lot of Bigfoot stuff over the years. You know, when you become passionate about something, um, you know, I mean, I think it's funny that, you know, I always say people always have an opinion about Bigfoot. You know, it doesn't matter if you're talking to somebody in Miami or New York City, they never go in the woods, they're not a hunter, they're not an outdoorsman, but they will still have an opinion on whether or not Bigfoot exists. And I always just find that people are so busy with their personal lives that they, aren't really keeping up with what's going on in Bigfoot. And I know I took somebody for a walk just this Sunday. And uh, one of my friends had told me had met this lady previously is like, you know, she's an outdoorsman, but she really doesn't believe in Bigfoot. And I'm like, that's cool. And so when I was teasing her, when we started, I'm like, I hear, you know, that you're not a Bigfoot person. And, but you know, by the end of the walk and you talking about Bigfoot for two hours, imagine being tormented with that. Right. Then, uh, you know, she said, you know, I, I could be open-minded about that. <clears throat> it's just know, like these... anything else. You just mm -hmm. need to have exposure information, you know, really, that's all it is. It is know? information. Because it is. Folks mm -hmm. don't know 
how much stuff is out there. They about don't. It. They just they just see what's on TV, you know, on the commercials and and every you know, the the now I hate to say the mockery of it, but the uh, the you know the yeah, like the the beef jerky commercials yeah. and you know stuff like that. Yeah, so the pop it's, culture of it, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, I think that it's, um, you know, when they get to hear it and they get into the meat of it, the juice of it, then they can hear some of the stories and stuff. And then you start talking about the witnesses that you have or doctors and lawyers and mayors and police chiefs that will tell you who they are so that you recognize their name, but then ask you never to be, you know, put it in public, never to include them. Then when people hear that kind of stuff, you know, or if they're around my office or my house and hear me talking to witnesses at least a couple of times a week, you know, they they just start to think that it seems unreasonable to believe that people aren't seeing something. Right. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of reports and actually, you know, maybe we'll, so you know, let's, I'm going to put a note. We're going to talk about the flats. Okay. And Russ knows what we're talking about mm -hmm. once, but, but before we get in that, into that, so um, you're a, a, a doctor. Yeah. And you see, how long have you been in practice? Because you see hundreds. Thirty-two years. Patients. November first will be thirty-two years. I'm at okay. two hundred and fifty thousand patient visits right now. Okay, which is so, a lot. Okay, and, and that's going to tie in a, a question I have too. Um, so you're in the BFRO as well. Yeah. So part of the part of your responsibilities when you become a BFRO uh, investigator is to take witness reports yes and you kind of walk through how, how does that normally go i mean you know just for the audience who does may not know so we have a uh tim alluded to it's called flats which stands up for um follow-up logging and tracking system and so essentially people come onto the internet you know 15 years ago there was really hardly any place to put a bigfoot report now there's other places you can do it of course um and a lot of us have good relationships across the country and get um, witnesses from other people. Like, you know, it's common. Cliff Berrickman sends me people, you know, if he gets them in Southern Ohio or West Virginia or Kentucky, a lot of times I'll hear from him. And, um, but usually we can look at any state, but normally we concentrate on area we're around. So I look at all of Ohio, I look at all of West Virginia, and I look at Eastern Kentucky because where I live in, hurricane west virginia of course if you're out of the state everybody else would call it hurricane but here we say hurricane um i'm about 45 minutes from kentucky and 45 minutes from ohio so you know i watch those states too there's really no one in those states that are as close to them as me um okay. so i would say that ohio is getting about three reports a week you know it's not saying that it's a really good report i'm just saying that it's you know you're getting a bigfoot report it might be somebody saying I've been in the woods my whole life. I know every sound that there is, and I know for sure I've never heard this, and it has to be a Bigfoot. You know, but of course, keep in mind, prior to the Finding Bigfoot show, most of the public never even really knew that Bigfoot made sounds. And right. then so all of a sudden, this TV show's on, and these guys are out here yelling and screaming. So then we got this abundance of reports of noise sounds that no one really knew what to do with for a long time. I mean, we were getting hundreds and hundreds of them at a time and you know you just have to kind of wade through them and see if there's anything besides that sound with them um so usually about twice a day i go on flats just to see if there's a report that i need to look at because you know i've always believed that we're we're right on the precipice it's just right around the corner it could happen at any time something is going to break and so you know i mean if it's in your area you want to be that person right. that gets a chance to go take part in that 
And, uh, you know, so then if it's something really good, exceptional, you know, a class A sighting, which is a clear visual sighting, you know, we may reach out immediately. If it's something that's older, we're probably reaching out by email and, you know, there's around 75,000 reports in flats. A lot of them haven't been looked at because there's just so many in so many different places when there's not necessarily, um, you know, people doing that in different places. Right. So, so for the audience, if, if, if I go on to just as a, from general public, if I go on to the BFRO, I can see yeah. what the public can see, but then yeah. what Russ is speaking to the flats is what the internal, the BFRO investigators can see. So we may see, I mean, maybe there's what, 6,000 or so reports. I don't know how many reports are on BFRO on the public site. Yeah. I'm not sure either on the public side, but we'll I see 10,000. And then like Russ said, there's 70,000 in there <laughs> so yeah. that we don't even see. Do you think there's anything in there like really substantial and you guys just haven't seen it because it's lost with, everything yes. else yeah i think that i think it's a gold mine okay. and for instance um one of my friends um that's well known uh you know across the country and is on tv and stuff and i won't mention just because you know i haven't talked to him about that he showed me a, a really good picture of a game cam photo of a bigfoot but it came from the discarded section in flats so let's say I'm looking, I'm going to go talk to a witness and it's in, you know, Raleigh County, West Virginia, which is near the West Virginia Turnpike. And so before I go talk to that witness, I may go to flats and see if there's other reports in that area. But I also look at the discarded reports just to see what's in there and where this one came from. It was someone just wrote in and said, I've got somebody that I'd like to talk to something I'd like to talk to somebody about. Well, somebody just discarded it, you know, instead of following up, or maybe they tried to call and they couldn't get a hold of the person and just got rid of it. And then later someone else reached out just to see, and that's where that picture came from. So, hmm. I mean, when I was doing the Appalachian Bigfoot, you know, Appalachia, you know, it's like 13 states. So I was going into all those states, looking at their best reports. And I was looking at all the reports that were inside Appalachia, say like, South Carolina has three or four counties in App Appalachia. Well, there's nobody doing their reports there. So, you know, I went back in and looked at all those reports the same way with Eastern Kentucky close to me. I didn't realize that no one was looking at that all the time. So I reached out to some of the people with good reports. You know, they're just gone now. I mean, their emails have changed or they've right. died or whatever's happened. Yeah. So, so you think, so you think some of it could be that there just may not be a BFRO investigator in that geographic region. So yes. nobody even looks at these reports. So I, I could go on and say, I could be in, well, I'll just say Florida or Delaware, for example. And if there's no one covering Delaware, no one may ever even look at my report. Yeah. I mean, exactly. But typically what happens is when people are new to the group, they're doing a lot of work. They're passionate. They're, they got all their energy. Then they're really closing a lot of reports, but then as time goes on, you get where you are doing less reports. You know, I'm watching it every day and I'll bet that the people that, you know, are near me in the different surrounding states, I doubt that many of them are going on each week or every couple of weeks. If you, know, you can say, if you can say how many, if you're allowed to say, how many BFR investigators do you think there are around the country? Gosh, I mean, when I started doing it, you had to be approved by Matt himself. And so you had to go like to three or four expeditions. The people in that area had to like you and get along with you and then Matt approve it. But, you know, things had changed as Matt's got busier with, the, you know, the TV shows and documentaries and stuff. So a lot of times now we just bring in people on our own. 
but there's, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe 150 people in North America, you know, now in terms of people being active, I mean, I think when you're looking at all the groups, when you're talking about the independent people, you're talking about the Olympic project guys or the wood ape guys down South or the Southwest or whatever there, you know, I still don't think that there's more than a hundred people that are actively investigating, doing research. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are out on weekends that a couple of times a year they're baking, you know, bacon or frying mm -hmm. bacon. And, you know, that's their Bigfoot thing. But I don't think that there's probably more than a hundred or so more or less that are doing active research for Bigfoot that are really out there all the time. I mean, that's, that's a big deal, right? Because, you know, here's what's going to happen. You know, somebody in West Virginia is going to shoot one. You know, I've had three different cases where a hunter has had one clear in his, his scope and did not shoot one or a coal truck somewhere is going to hit one and it's going to become acknowledged. Then we're going to see the government's going to be involved and they're going to be paying somebody to come out and they're going to be in places where the rest of us aren't allowed to go. They're going to be there for long term with the newest technology. And, you know, it's going to be a game changer. Now we have citizen scientists, you know, and I read a chapter on that on citizen science, uh, scientists in the second book, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was the second book, um, you know, just talking about we, how we need to hold ourselves to a standard, being able to recognize the different trees and foods and so forth and so on that we just don't do a lot of. I mean, we have all this evidence and this stuff that, you know, has it changed? Has it progressed? Yes, I think it has. Do we know more than we did? I think we do. I think we have a greater understanding now. But at the end of the day, the thing that compels all of us most is, you know, that you get a couple of those witnesses, man, that like maybe this year I'll look at 100, 200 different cases. And but there's going to be like four or five of them that are really pretty freaking awesome. And there's going to be like, you know, one or two that eat at you. They just those are the ones that just keep you going. Right. So let's for talk instance, about that. Yeah. yeah so for so instance, um, no, go ahead. Not many months ago, you know, I get this guy and, and, you know, here in West Virginia, I mean, we have some remote places. There's places that you can, you can go 11, 12. There's one place you can go 18 miles in between roads. And I say roads, wow. we're not talking about, you know, a two lane highway. We're just talking about a gravel forest road. Very steep. The train here is unimaginably straight up and down in many places. And it's just inhospitable. You know, you can't see very far, but. Um, I took this report from this guy and he, you know, he has a master's degree and, and, uh, you know, he's a psychologist or, you know, I'll call him a counselor or what, I'm not sure what he would be, be preferred to be called, but, you know, he, someone that's really into ginseng, you know, they may, a couple guys may dig in a year, maybe they get $10,000. Somebody that's really a big deal might get $20,000 of ginseng. Cause you know, it's only harvested in the fall. It's only the season is open for about six weeks and, people have been going after it for generations, you know, so it's harder to find large plants. Everything's smaller now. And so this gentleman, he had dug $20,000 worth in a weekend on, no, I'm sorry. It's $10,000 worth on a weekend, four different times. Wow. Yeah. Which is almost unheard of or unfathomable, but how he does is, is he just stares at maps and he looks for places that are inaccessible, that four wheelers can't get to, that it's a haul to get to. So he chose this one place and it was a four hour walk from him. That was as close as he could get with a vehicle or a four wheeler. He walks four hours, which, you know, I figure if you're traveling about, you know, 30 minutes a mile, 
you know, it's about four miles back in from wherever he was at. And he told me that when he, he had his 13 year old stepson with him. And when he dropped over this hill, he thought that he heard something laugh at him. <laughs> that was just the sound he perceived. Mm -hmm. And he stopped, he didn't hear anything. Then he dropped into this, you know, off this ridge into this little, you know, dropping into a flat. And just so people understand here in West Virginia, we have hollers. So the holler is at the bottom and then you would have these flat places maybe every so often up to the top and a mountain may have three flats or five flats or two flats or whatever it happens to have. But in a flat is actually a flat spot. But he um, he heard it again. He looked down below and he said, man, he said, you know, just about 100 yards or so from you, there is this I can see it down there. He's like, it's, you know, it's dark collared. It's hair covered. You know, it's about seven feet tall. And he's like, it's pulling trees over and so i thought that was interesting because if you go on the internet you always hear people say about something pushed a tree over something did this but we never think about them pulling it right and he's like no it was pulling the trees over and he said everyone it was pulling at 7 30 that's where it was coming down on a clock and so then that was really interesting to me because i'm thinking does that mean that it has a dominant hand, you know, it's more right-handed or it's more left-handed because it's pulling it at that angle. You know, it's just an interesting thing is we never really considered that something might be pulling rather than pushing. And, and the um, fact that he said pulling, you know, that almost gives him some credibility because you never hear that. So why would he, why would someone yeah. make that up? Right. Yeah. So he, uh, it, it walked up this hill. And so he told his stepson, which was terrified. He's like, I want to go down there and look where it was. And he said, we walked the stepson solid too, Russ. Yeah, they were, yeah, okay. it was very, very clear in the woods. You know, generally my experience is that they will always hold still or stay behind something unless they believe that they have been sighted. I mean, they're the patience they have is unbelievable. You know, they'll stay perfectly still long periods of time, 20 minutes, perfectly still not moving or just squat down like a stump and not move. Or even if they're very large, they'll pause behind a tree that's not very big, you know, until they've been sighted, then they may do something or they'll walk off or whatever it happens to be. But largely they just hold still. But um, he said they went down there and he said, you know, they were like four to six inch trees that were down there that had been pulled down. And he said that when they were looking at it, he said, then this rock rolled down the hill and he said, he looked up there. He said, he could see it sitting right beside a stump that was looking at him. And so then he told his stepson, you know, listen, we're going to walk out of here we're going to go the same way we came and that's what we're going to do. So like so many of the Bigfoot witnesses, you know, he was, I mean, ate up with it. I mean, every day he's texting me wanting to talk about or having questions. Right. And once they have this experience, I think that they think that they'll have another experience or it's easy to get another one. But, but these animals are so rare that, you know, you're just fortunate to ever have an experience. I mean, it's just unusual to have it. And he would send me a map and he would say, I've been looking at maps and there's this one hollow, these four counties come together and no one's back there. It's about a two hour walk. There's watersheds, blah, blah, blah. And I just told him like, listen, man, there's a lot more good places for Bigfoot in West Virginia than there are Bigfoot, you know, because the BFRO estimates that there's one Bigfoot for every 68 brown bear or black bears. Um, I'm trying to think of his name, uh, Grover Krantz, you know, he believed there was one for about every 100 black bears. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, he was in Pacific Northwest, so there might be a difference, you know, from one side of the country to another. Because um, generally, black bear and other animals have larger habitats out West. 
than they do through the Appalachian region. You know, we're so we receive so much rain or so much food here that they're smaller home areas than okay. what uh, they're experiencing. But anyway, so, um, you know, the guy would send that to stuff to me. I tried to get him on the podcast and he just wasn't comfortable, you know, being like that, being in front of people or talking or whatever it happens to be. And eventually I just didn't hear from him anymore. I know that he does. I see him on the West Virginia Bigfoot Facebook page that I have. And I see that he follows the stuff that I'm posting on there. But and he you know, wasn't into Bigfoot before this happened. No, I had right. no interest at all. He told me that he didn't even think that anything like that existed. And that's the prime the primary objection that you have from hunters. And I just heard it from some patient yesterday was that, you know, they've been in the woods their whole life, a lot of it pretty remote. They've just never heard anything or seen anything. But I think a lot of that is a lot of the people don't recognize the behaviors or the noises, you know. So like when I'm out hiking with someone like that lady on Sunday, I'd ask her, you know, have you ever heard anything unusual in the no woods and you ever hear this type of noise? Well, yeah, you know, I think I have heard that. And have you ever felt like something was watching you got in an area, you just felt uncomfortable. And once you start talking about these things that could mean something, then they kind of put it together. Um, not unlike my grandfather, which was the greatest woodsman that I ever knew. And I've told this story many times, you know, him and I would be coon hunting there was not good flashlights in the seventies. We had one that was like <laughs> on a big battery that you screwed in. It was bright, but it burned out pretty quickly. And so we saved it when we had a coon treed. And so we were using a carbide light, just one, you know, it had those rocks in it. It had a little candle with a light. Like you see the miners, my grandpa would hold it. But whenever we would pause or stop, you know, we would be way back in Ohio's most remote area. And we didn't have any lights on. We were just sitting there, you know, before we went, I would go into a cellar and I would grab as many apples as I could carry that he had dumped on the floor there. And I'd get like five in my pockets and we'd be sitting in there eating an apple. And I remember on one occasion, you know, hearing a wood knock and asking him what it was and him telling me that, you know, when people slam car doors way down the hollows that the sound comes up and it kind of ricochets and goes back and forth and makes these funny noises. But I mean, that's what he believed, you know, he just didn't know any better, but if he was still alive and I could walk him through him and talk to him, I'm sure that there's many, many times that he was around something and just didn't, re you know, realize it. Yeah. Um, I think that happens a lot in life with just a lot of different things until you're made aware of what mm -hmm. could possibly be around you. You just, you wouldn't even notice it. Yeah. I was, mm -hmm. I was chatting with Dan Young just the other day, a couple mm -hmm. days ago, uh, outdoors, Dan, you know, he's, he's, I was on his show. He does the ESP, he's a ESPN. He's a hunter. He's archery hunter for forever, you know, 30, 30, 40 years or whatever. And he's in a Bigfoot. He, he hasn't had any experiences. Well, he, you know, he doesn't think he has, but, but he, and he's, so he's a longtime hunter and he said, yeah, sometimes you, you know, we we're even though we're hunters and we are, um, you know, their their hunters are honed in to pick up different things, different sign of the animals they're tracking. They may miss something else that they're not looking for. Yeah, I mean it's um, it's rare just to be around them. You know, I mean, I think that we need to be suspicious of people that believe that they can just walk in the woods and are continually having big bigfoot experiences. I just don't believe that. I, you know, in a course of a year, like three or four times I may be confident I'm around them. And I'm talking about during the daytime, you know, because I quit doing the nighttime unless I was just doing it with my friends for fun, because I just believe that nighttime is about experiences, you know, people out there trying to have an experience rather than truly gathering evidence, because at present, the scientists, the powers that be are not impressed by the evidence that we're bringing forth. You know, now everybody's talking about, you know, we all have thermals, we all have 
drones with thermals. Well, they're just not compelled by that stuff. At least what we've done thus far, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to be out there during the day. Cause you know, Bigfoot's still out there during the day, right? It's just staying back farther away from where people are. So you just have to find a way to try to get back in there and find a way to get lucky. You know, maybe, um, I know Doug Hycheck and I have talked before. If, if someone can just get, you know, like four seconds of fairly close 4k video, it would be compelling to a lot of people. And, you know, I had a chance about three years ago to have that. And I wasn't carrying a GoPro at that time. Since that time, I carry it all the time. Anytime I'm out there, I'm having it on me, you know, on top of my hiking stick. And as I'm walking along, you know, I've trained myself that if I look away, I turn that, turn my stick that way as well. Um, but I had been in the woods in Ohio, the story that I was, that I was talking about, and there was this guy, I, what I try to do is like, if I get a report that I think is reliable or from someone else, I will add it to my calendar and I'll say, okay, so this state park, this date, you know, and you just keep trying to add dates to it. And then I know you guys had Dr. Kenny Brown on, he does long duration recording and some of my other friends do as well. And so they may call me or text me and say, Hey, I've got a wood knock at this location on this date. And so I just add it to the calendar, trying to accumulate you know, some type of picture of where they would be giving a rough idea so that when I can go in the woods during that time, that's where I am. And so I was at this particular park because two guys had had a sighting that week, two years before. So I don't know that that means that they're there. Right. But it just, you know, it felt like it gives me a better shot if I knew that they were there at that time. And it had rained hard all night. And so when I was there, nobody was there. And, um, I'd walked up on top of this mountain. And of course I can see it's not long after daylight, but I could see that, you know, in the mud puddles, nobody else has been there. And like I said, nobody else was parked there when I went in and shade, my lab is loose. He's usually laying somewhere around me here, but, <laughs> um, he's trained, you know, he never stays more about 25 feet from me. He doesn't chase anything. Wow, um, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. He's unbelievable in the woods. I mean, <laughs> we come to a path where a path will split. He'll look at me. To, for me to nod or point a way to go. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and so I have a leash wrapped around my neck, just hanging there, just in case we would bump into somebody, you know, a hiker that's afraid of dogs or whatever it happens to be. And so I looked and saw, um, you guys know what a pawpaw is? It's kind I of do now. We do. We learned what it was. Yeah. It's that fruit. At, uh, cause I oh, yeah. We don't have them here. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're common in Appalachia mm -hmm. and they, they grow in rhizosomes. You know what I mean? Like there'll be little patches of them commonly, like, you know, they're four to eight feet tall, but there was a patch off to my right. And there's usually, you know, a lot of times you'll see 15 or 20 trees right there. And when I glanced, I saw what I thought was a hiker in a, the bedroll, like right beside his head. And I noticed that from top to bottom that it was buff collared, kind of that tan buff collared. And as soon as I saw it, I just went down on one knee and whistled for shade. And he ran right up to me quickly. And probably in less than 10 seconds, I was up and walking again. But as soon as I started walking, I just saw the trail I was on went away from that. And I knew it was off trail what I'd seen. And that was right at a, a ridge tip. And I ran right over there. I mean, I was there probably, I mean, 30 seconds after I saw it. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, there was just nothing there. You know, I mean, I knew what it was then. Okay. But that's one of the challenges I think is if you're in the woods a lot and you've been raised that way and you hunt a lot and travel a lot and all this other stuff that you do, there's this tendency for us to instantly categorize something as we see it or know it. So our brain will instantly, you know, to me, it said, you know, there's a hiker 
or a backpacker or whatever it happens to be, even though that nobody would be backpacking in there. That's just what my brain told me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now I try to recognize all the time. Last summer I was in this place that's not far from me here, but there's a history of Bigfoot activity in the seventies. You know, and that's another one of those things that I look at work. Uh, we call it the halibut effect that, you know, the halibut, the big fish is usually found in the same places generationally. So if it's the area looks and feels about the same, then it's probably going to be the same when you go there again. And so we have the halibut effect in Bigfoot because if the land looks about the same and it hasn't changed that much, then there's a good chance maybe something's around there. And I heard this loud tree break. It wasn't very far from me, maybe less than a hundred yards is brushy. And instantly my thought was that was too loud for a Bigfoot. And I just kind of mm -hmm. kept going what I was doing. And then later I was like, you know, why wouldn't you just walk that hundred yards and just and look check it out? Right. Yeah. But for whatever reason, you know, my brain had just said da, 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 and made these decisions. So now every time I go into woods, I try to remind myself, you know, just don't take anything for granted, you know, pause when you hear something or whatever it happens to be. And, um, you know, and maybe I'm better now that the last couple of years I've had shade with me too, you know, cause I'm watching him all the time. He smells better than me. He mm -hmm. doesn't see as well as me. I see a lot more of the deer and the other wildlife and he walks right over top of snakes. Um, <laughs> but you know, I can tell the way he acts, you know, I've recognized certain animals. He smells a certain way, you know, I can't tell what's in there, but yeah. So hey, Russ, real quick though, going back to your story of, um, of what you, you know, at first you thought was a hiker, you said yeah. you came into that uh, situation because of a witness. Uh, yeah. what, what, what was their story? So their story was that they had went to this lake fishing and it was getting just dusk. And, and so they were going into this woods that was surrounding them just to get some firewood. So they'd have wood during the night to burn a lot of people, catfish in Appalachia at night. Right, right, right. And so they went into the woods and when they went in there, both of them literally walked into this Bigfoot. And I don't know if it was there. What do you mean by walked into? Like it was, uh, it was in the woods standing there. Oh, so gosh. when they went into the woods, you know, it was right there. Okay. So, that's, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. Of course, when I say a lot of things that for me, it's just a speculation. Like, I think that um, Bigfoot many times behave like big old bucks. And big bucks, like I'm talking about trophy bucks, like you see in many of the Midwestern states, they are largely nocturnal. And they stay way back in a place where they think that no one's going to come, you know, and they know that historically that people don't go there or maybe it's too thick or maybe it's too far back in or whatever it happens to be. And then as it gets closer to dark, they keep creeping and creeping closer and closer to the area where either the does are or where there is food. And I think that Bigfoot would do a similar type thing based on the reports and whatnot that we hear. And um, so I don't know whether it'd creep closer just to watch them or whether, you know, it's just coming close to the lake. Cause that's probably where a lot of the food was. And, around a lot of lakes, you have these grassy area where, you know, it creates an edge and edges where, you know, there's different types of um, agriculture. And of course, deer will be there and so forth. Yes, yeah, so that's important. Okay. So that, so they came across this Bigfoot, uh, yeah. ran into it in the woods and what happened? They ran and it ran. Okay. Opposite and that was the extent of their story. Yeah. You know, and that's probably most of the stories, right? It's like a road crossing is most common. You know, mm -hmm. a hunter is probably the second most common thing that you would see. Mm -hmm. And um, most of them don't last that long. I mean, mm -hmm. two of the hunter ones that I recall here in West Virginia um, lasted maybe less than 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it looks a little too human-like. And so, you know, people just aren't shooting it. But, you know, I think that if they were 
more of them there inevitably there would be somebody would take a shot at at least here in west virginia for sure so so they you said because you you've had a few reports where they just yeah. they they were out they just basically had it in their sights and yeah what, what went through their mind you know you know i remember uh in ohio until say this last decade you know we coyotes weren't very common we didn't have a lot of them around of course now they're just everywhere um but we would always shoot them because you know we always had cows and livestock and whatnot but I know my brother-in-law was him and I were deer hunting with the family and he told me he saw a coyote because back then you would tell somebody if you saw him because it was so rare. And I was like, why didn't you shoot it? And he's like, it just caught me off guard. I didn't expect to see it. And then it looked like a dog. So for an instant, you know, I just paused and it was gone. And I think that that's what Bigfoot does. Nobody expects to see a Bigfoot when they go into the woods. You see it. It looks human-like for a second. You pause. And, you know, one of the hunters that I interviewed you know, he was within sight of the New River Gorge Bridge. And, you know, the New River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia now is the nation's newest national park. And so there's quite a few people around, but it's, you know, it's very rugged. It's very steep. It's just hard to, you know, to get in and out. But he had stopped and, you know, I went to this place myself and looked around. And so he had walked maybe, I don't know, a quarter mile back in. And, and uh, he said he saw something move. And so he pulled his scope up. And he saw a hand on the side of a tree. And so he dropped his gun real quick because he thought it was a person. You know, he didn't want to be pointing his gun at a person. Right. But he didn't see anybody step out or whatever. So he raised his gun again. And he said, you know, he could see it was behind the tree, but it had its hands wrapped around the front or one hand. And, you know, he said it had it was a very large hand with very dark nail beds. Mm -hmm. And then when he was looking at that, then it slowly leaned out and looked at him. And he saw it blink twice, then it slowly went back behind. And I don't recall how many times, maybe once or twice, or maybe a couple times, it looked out at him like that, edge right on the edge of a right away. And he said that when it went mm. back behind the tree, he just never saw it again. Hmm. You know, it was just gone. But, you know, once again, a guy that, you know, he graduated from WU, he has three degrees, he's 30-something years old, he's a bright guy, you know, clearly hunts. I mean, just like the one guy was telling you about the counselor, I mean, he's killed five bears. I mean, mm -hmm. wow, right. these are guys that, you know, it's unreasonable to say, well, they probably saw a bear standing up down there. I mean, he's killed five of them. It's in the wide open mm -hmm. woods. You know, he knows the noise that bears makes me. And, and, you know, it clearly wasn't a bear. Right. I mean, sometimes skeptics, I think, are just skeptics to be skeptics because to discount people like that or, you know, they're just simply it makes you sound disingenuous like. For instance, Action Jackson, which you know is the most renowned game warden park ranger that we've ever had in the history of the United States. You know, he was at Yellowstone. And uh, after he retired, you know, he was on a podcast and he said that he had a daytime sighting of Bigfoot, you know, that he, his horse kind of shied, he could hear something in the brush and he thought, you know, it's probably a bear or something. And then he saw this fur covered, fur covered animal got out and it ran from tree to tree as he was watching it to get away from him. And so, you know, is it reasonable for the public or for a skeptic to tell Action Jackson, who for 30 something years patrolled the most remote part of the whole United States on horseback, that he didn't see something? Right. You know, it just, you know, if it was one person in one time, but you know, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of stories of rangers after they retire that come forward. And I can tell you that many times when I go into these parks and establish relationships, that it's more common that a ranger has had a Bigfoot experience than it is for them not to have had one. That's interesting. Have, have there been any 
reports that you've taken that have like, like really shook you up or, you know, kind of got to you personally? Yeah. You know, almost all of them, you know, if they're really good, they're excite you. But, you know, I took this report last year and it was in uh, Cherokee national forest in Tennessee. Um, you know, it's in Eastern Tennessee, not that far from Virginia or West Virginia. And this lady had been, um, you know, she was raised in Florida. She really wasn't an outdoorsy kind of person, but, um, when she got there, her family started camping a lot and they always camped over there in, in that, uh, national forest. And so when she graduated, her and some of her friends had decided they were going to go there and camp. And so, uh, her and her best friend decided they go a day early. And she said that, you know, you go up there and you go past the ranger station and when you park, um, you know, you had to walk about 20 minutes into this one remote campsite. And so she said that when they walked into it, they heard later what she would recognize as wood knocks, but <laughs> they just thought that somebody else was there and they called out as anybody there and you know, nobody said anything. And so the girls started, you know, carrying their stuff and they were kind of alternating. One was coming, one was going type thing. And they said that each time that they noticed that they were still hearing that noise when they got back there. But she said they unloaded and unpacked and they didn't hear anything and they, you know, slept up at night and, you know, nothing happened and they had a good time. And the next day they were going to walk to a waterfall, which was a couple hour walk away to eat lunch. And, and they did. And she told me, she said, honestly, we, we probably didn't shut up the whole time. We were laughing and talking all the way out there and we ate. And she said that when they were on their way back and they got within about 30 minutes or so, the one girl had lost her earring. And so she said that they were quiet, bent down, trying to find the, uh, you know, the little piece that I don't know what you call it. Dana, the back they, of the earring. Yeah. Yeah. That piece that you know. holds the earring on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so she said when they did that, she said that they thought that they heard something laughing and they were at this part of the trail where it was in all these rhododendron bushes, but there was a trail, the deer trail, you know, just something narrow in between these rhododendron bushes and about 30 yards away was a little stream. And so the one girl said, you know, I think it's the boys, you know, they showed up a day early trying to scare us. And so they kind of listened and nothing happened for a minute or so. And then they heard it again. As the one girl grabbed the other one by hand and said, come on, come on. You know, and so they were quietly sneaking over there. And she said that when they, they could tell something, they could see water moving in the creek, but there was a little curve there. So they didn't really see anything. And so when they stepped out, she said there was all this motion and all this noise all around them apparently, you know, something scattering or things scattering, but she said they're standing right in front of them, just about 15 feet in front of them was an enormous Bigfoot in the and water, she, in the water. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's just a little stream. Right. And she said, we didn't even know that if it was real, she said it was holding perfectly still, wasn't mm -hmm. even moving. Mm -hmm. And she said that they started hearing a noise over to their right and they looked and they didn't see anything. But when they looked back, that Bigfoot was leaning back and she said it was almost like the matrix. It was leaned so far back. Hmm. And she said, then it took its right arm and had it like over its heart. And then it threw its hand at him with its palm up and said, Whoa. Mm -hmm. and then it started taking very slow steps backwards. And she said it was, you know, of course, one step at a time, right behind one step behind one foot behind another foot almost like it was gripping the ground when it was walking backwards. And when it got to the edge of the rhododendron, once again, it did that same motion forward and said, wah. And then it just stepped into the woods and she said it was just gone. But she said, as soon as it was gone, 
it was like the woods exploded around them, all these noises and screams and trees breaking. And she said they both put their hands over their head. They thought for sure that, you know, the woods was coming down around them. Right. But eventually the sound just got where it was going farther away. And the one girl looked at the other one and said, you know, what in the hell was that? And she said, I don't know. And she walked over to where it was standing and there was a little like a rock outcropping right there. And on top of it was a bunch of crawdads. Mm. And she said, we interrupted it. You know, it was there doing that stuff and didn't hear us for whatever reason coming. And um, she said that they, you know, they were walking that 30 minutes back there. And she said she could tell her friend was not doing good. They had both peed themselves, you know, when the experience had happened. Mm. And she could tell her friend was having a panic attack as they were walking back. <clears throat> and uh, excuse me. And so when they got back there, her friend's like, we're out of here. And so she thought, you know, she kind of thought they would just stay there, but her friend's like, no, we're out of here. And so they just picked up whatever they could carry in that one load, walked out, went to the car, left. And when they got down there, they had to stop to tell, you know, the Rangers they weren't there or whatever it happens to be. Well, the other girl ran in first and just started screaming at the Ranger monster, whatever. And, you know, and the second girl walked in and the Rangers just looking at her and, you know, he's like, are you guys okay? And she's, the first girl screamed no and she just left and when she left the ranger told that girl he's like listen we don't have monsters in the woods we don't have people that live here in the woods you know you probably saw a bear and she told me she's like it just seemed ridiculous for him to say and you know it's probably a two-hour interview that i was doing of which mm -hmm. many many minutes of it was just her sitting and quietly sobbing while she's telling me the story mm -hmm. and she said that um you know, when they left there the next day, you know, cause we didn't have cell phones back then, you know, this is not that long ago, but the boys that were supposed to be meeting them called them from a payphone and said, you know, are you guys okay? And she's like, yeah, why? And she's like, he's like, when we walked into that campsite, all that stuff was tore up. Wow. And she's like, he's like that table. You know how you used to have those like aluminum metal tables, everybody camped with like Coleman ones that kind of right, folded right. up like a suitcase mm -hmm. and it was still attached, but it was just twisted mm. completely wow. around. So he loaded that stuff up and took it to her. And she had told me that when she dropped her friend off at her, at her friend's house, she said, we never saw each other again. That was the last time we ever saw each other or talked. And when that boy had brought that furniture or that stuff left over from their camping trip, she said it disturbed her so much that she just took it to like a Kmart trash bin and just threw it in there to get rid of it. So it wasn't around her, but you know, she went on, she lived her life and she raised kids and she never spent time in the woods again. Hmm. And she moved to uh, Philadelphia and was living with her sister and opened a business. And she said it was years and years later, you know, like 15, 20 years later. And she was walking through the airport and here comes that guy's brother or that girl's brother. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that a girl had passed away. She had, she had committed suicide. Oh my gosh. And, um, so he asked that girl, he's like, you know, what was it? What happened on that mountain? And she said, she just looked at him and he said, what was it? The boys, did the boys do something to you guys? That's kind of what we thought. And she said that she started telling the story. It was the first time that she'd ever told the story. And she said, I could just see the look on his face. You know, he, he was horrified to hear what I was telling him. And and he said, I don't know what to do with that. What am I supposed to tell my parents? And she said, you know, I don't know. And she just walked off. And um, 
I can tell you that after I took that story, I was in the woods the next day and I was paying more attention than normal. You know what I mean? Like normally I'm just out there so much that I don't think much about it. I'm just in a groove, but um, it gave me pause, you know, to think about having an experience like that. You yeah. Know, and I, that I think be- what's interesting is, and, I, and I've said this before, and I think I've just heard it so many times before is that, you know, we forget about the reality of seeing, uh, you know, seven, eight foot, you know, tall creature that's four five, 600 pounds that you're just not expecting to see on a camping trip or hunting or fishing. And, and there's a lot of fear that comes with it, yeah. you know? And you I, know, I my- that's, you know, that's another question we wanted to ask you was, you know, like, what other like consistencies and similarities um, do witnesses share in regards to their sightings, including the fear factor? Yeah. You know, um, not all the time do you hear people being fearful. It just wasn't that type of encounter. You know, I remember the very first one I took when I was started doing reports for the group was from a state trooper. And I, I mean, I had some things happen to me. I was pretty sure that something existed. I just didn't know what the deal was. You know, I'd found a couple other tracks and had a, you know, a couple experiences, you know, after my initial one, before I went on to undergraduate and to doctor school was out of state in an area that they probably wouldn't exist in. And, um, and this was like maybe the first week I was doing reports and I got the state trooper one and him and his wife were riding a four wheeler and he liked to ginseng hunt and it was in the summer. And once again, you're not allowed to do it then, but you're allowed to look and see where you might see it or think it was a good spot. And they were just putting around and they were riding on a right of way. And of course that's a common place for a four wheelers to ride. But a lot of us think that, you know, Bigfoot, we use those right of ways as a passage, right? You know, it kind of avoids houses, you know, it goes for long straight distances. And once again, you know, it's creating an edge where a lot of the wildlife will gather for food and whatnot. And he said that they just kind of took a turn and went on another little path. And he said, I just was putting along. And he's like, he's like, you ever seen one? And I said, no. And he's like, man, he's like, it's the size of a sheet of plywood. It's that big. He's like, people disappear. And I'm not saying that they do, that these things do it, but they're just so big. You can't fathom. And he said, it was like, I thought it was a fireburn stump. He said, you know, I was within 30, 35 yards of it before I realized what it was. And he said, then I started hitting reverse. And my wife said, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, look, look, look. And she started screaming, oh my God, no, oh my God, no. And he's like, I had a gun, but you know what I mean? It was so enormous. We were just trying to get out of there. And so they got turned around and roared out of there. And, you know, later the wife gets counseling you know, even living in town that, you know, if there was a noise in her subdivision, she would think the Bigfoot was in the subdivision. Well, you said they moved, right? Also. Yeah, they moved as a result, you know, and then I took Darren Pavarnik and I went there, the two, two cops together, both of them had their guns pulled the whole time. The cop that had the experience was chain smoking and crying. I mean, it was clear to me, you know, that, you know, he had some type of experience clearly. Um, but in terms of things that you see commonly from witnesses, of course, they don't have any contact with each other, right? These witnesses, they don't have any contact with, they're not in Bigfoot world usually, right? I mean, these are just normal people. And some of them are, I mean, Matt uh, Moneymaker always says that, you know, the Bigfoot witnesses aren't a demographic, they're a geographic. 
They just all live in an area where Bigfoot exists. They don't have that many things in common because most of them are road signs. And these may be people that are just driving down the road that never go in the woods. Um, and so sometimes, you know, when you can get a couple of those together, because just a couple of Bigfoot reports may be a cluster because there's just not that many sightings, right? Like I remember one time I took a report from a nurse and, you know, I was always excited when I talked to her. She was bright and she was well-spoken and it was in a wilderness area, which we have five of in West Virginia. And she thought it was a bear crossing the road. And she's like, I see him all the time. It's a bear sanctuary. And she said, but it slipped. And when it slipped, it reached up with a hand and grabbed a hold of a tree, you know, and turned and looked at me. And so, hmm. you know, I made note of it. I'd been to that area before, you know, many times or through there. And then a few years later, I get this report and it's from a medical doctor and his wife and they're going to work. And he tells his wife, same mountain, same going, same downhill as that other nurse was. And he says, you know, what's that guy doing in an ape cons, uh, costume? And he gets down there to where it crossed. And then he's like, it, it crossed the road in three steps. And he told his wife, we just saw freaking Bigfoot. <laughs> and so then it ate at me because, you know, like, I mean, these are rare animals. Why is one right there, you know, years apart in the same spot, you know, and you're staring mm -hmm. at these maps and, I mean, I feel sorry for someone that I'm in a relationship with because, you know, many nights when they're trying to watch TV or something, I'm sitting on my couch with maps open, just looking at these maps, just trying to figure out, you know, why there's a report here. What is it that, you know, is causing that animal to be there? And of course, you know, who knows, right? But, you know, for the those of us that are really interested and in just eats at us, you know, we want to know. Um, That's like Tim and I. I'm watching like murder shows. <laughs> my true crime stories and Tim's in the office doing Bigfoot stuff, just whatever it is that I'm just. And ironically, you were the one that brought him. Into I Bigfoot. know. And sometimes I like to watch Bigfoot stuff yeah. and I'm really into like, I listen to stuff by myself. You know, I was just mm -hmm. watching something about Scott Nelson yesterday, but I just don't like to, what do you call it? Tim is fully immersed. I'm like yeah. Russ. Russ yeah, I'm kind of like that. And too. I'm totally into it too, but you know, it's hard I have other know. things to do. Maybe I don't know when I'm at yeah. home. <laughs> I'd say you're more normal. There yeah. you go. You're well, I don't know if I'm normal, it. but yeah, no, I hear you. Like, I'm just like, okay, Bigfoot's cool. And let's watch a documentary or let's do this. But okay. Real life now, you know, <laughs> but in terms of what you would hear commonly from witnesses that people wouldn't recognize two things come to mind. One is wrinkles around the eyes. You will commonly hear people say that. And it's not something you would, you know, I mean, like the public's probably not going to know. And the other thing is the long stringy hair off the forearms that's much longer than the rest of the body hair. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that for a number of witnesses. Mm -hmm. um, and you wonder about these stories. Like I took this witness in West Virginia. We have a resort called the Greenbrier, you know, which was is well known nationally, one of the nicest resorts in the whole country. It's where Congress was going to hide out if there was some type of nuclear attack. Yeah. And um, so from Lewisburg, West Virginia to the White Sulphur Springs, which is where the Greenbrier exit is by, I don't know, six, seven miles or something. But it's an interstate at 64. It's running right over to Roanoke, Virginia, right onto the East Coast. And um, this guy had been over to Richmond for a VA appointment. And he's with his son, you know, and he, his son's in his 30s or whatever. And they're, and they're driving, you know, toward Beckley, West Virginia. So they're driving west on Interstate 64. He said it's it's getting dusk. He's like, some of the people have their lights on, some don't. And he's like, I see coming out of the eastbound lane, these cars kind of like, 
you know, they're flashing their lights. Something's going on. People are slowing down. And he looks and he tells his son, there's some guy running across the road. And he said right in front of him was a big log truck that was in the right-hand lane. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that, that thing crosses the median. And he says, you know, we're driving 65, 70 or whatever, going mm -hmm. right at it. And we're getting closer and closer to it. And he said, then, you know, it gets in front of us and we can see that, you know what I mean? It's just some kind of animal. It's got hair all over it long hair he said it's about the color of an irish setter and then it's hanging off its forearms well that logging truck is right there so the animal had to pause to let the logging truck go before it could cross on across the road and he said i just saw the hair on its arms that long string of hair just set down when it stopped you know like where it had been running and it was flopping around mm -hmm, and flowing, it just sat, right? yeah just sat down he said then that truck went by and then it ran up that hill right there and we were right there and it was just when it got to the edge of that grass and was going in the woods, it just turned around and looked back at the road. And, you know, you hear those stories commonly across the nation where all at once, you know, you'll have all these witnesses witness the same thing. And earlier this year, was it this year or last fall? I can't remember. I take so many reports. You know, I had two witnesses, two different cars, saw a juvenile cross the road here in West Virginia on a mountain highway and you know they didn't know each other and they both saw it and they both stopped and they talked about it you know and i was able to talk to both of the witnesses oh you know, that's about pretty what cool saw. yeah so i wonder what in what in the animal kingdom or what in the evolution the the, the long hair and the forearms would be attributed to that's interesting i mean we well, orangutans have that too yeah yeah. Uh, you know, commonly the greater primates that have, and of course, you know, I always try to when I get a chance, just so so people understand how it works. I mean, so you know, prior to say ten or twenty thousand years ago, there was nothing in North America. You know, then the Bering Land Bridge between Russia and the United States, Alaska, froze, and then animals that were in Asia were able to come across the Bering Land Bridge and then disperse across North America. And you know, when we look at the fossils and the fossil records. Now it's looking like that prior to 10 to 20,000 years ago, there might've been a few people around that were coming along the coast all the way that had made their way in. But largely there was nothing in the inner landmass. There was no native Americans. There were no Indians. There was nobody here. Mm -hmm. They all came across that way. And so whatever Bigfoot happens to be, he came across that way too. And mm -hmm. one of the things that's most compelling is that, you know, the most reports that come out of North America are in that area where that Bering land bridge is and down through there which would make sense and be indicative of a real animal. And another thing that they talked about in the seventies that we really haven't addressed that much, probably because we just don't have that many track casts yet. You know, now it's in the hundreds, but when they were looking at it back then, they made notion that of Bergman's rule, which is the biological rule that animals are essentially larger as you get farther from the equator. So a deer that's near the equator is smaller than a deer in say Canada. And so Bigfoot following that would be similar and the tracks that are found in cast are indicative so the average cast that you would find down south seems tends to be smaller than a track that you would find in the north mm -hmm. um you know in terms of what it may be you know of course first we always talk about gigantopithecus which came you know it was in asia there were millions of them we have bones we have all that stuff from it you know it was the largest ape it was eight to ten feet tall you know the problem with that is that it's largely um a vegetarian so at some point it would have had to adopt a more omnivore type, you know, lifestyle, but it, it disappeared a couple hundred thousand years ago, which isn't very long ago. Right. And some mm -hmm. of the guys like Paranthropus, which came out of Africa, which essentially is a Bigfoot, looks like one, acts like one, 
Um, the problem with that is, you know, we don't have bones showing that it came all the way from Africa because whereas Gigantopithecus was in Asia, that's not that far, but to come from Africa is a long walk and we just don't have anything. But just because we don't doesn't mean that's not what it is because right. we don't have a lot of the bones for anything. Or it could be something else that just hasn't been discovered yet. Yep. Absolutely. And that might even mm -hmm. be the most likely thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. So this was cool, Russ. This was cool, Russ. So, we really appreciate you so, telling us all your stories. So for the audience. Yes, we have to share the books. Who's, who's watching? If you're listening, mm -hmm. uh, Tracking the Stone Man. Second edition is out Jones. a couple months ago. Yeah. yeah the, it's interesting because yeah. people think that it's the second edition. It's not the same book at all. You know, it's all updated. Mm -hmm. 100 new pages, new topics, and new reports that, you know, I've went through, including a couple that I shared here. And the great thing about it, too, is, oh, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to dumb down the book. I'm just saying that a lot of Bigfoot books are, like, hard Intense, to read. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I think, it, I think you're really great at communicating what's going on in the Bigfoot world in a way where, a new person could just pick up this book and just read and learn so much about it and not have to read the paragraph over three or four times before you comprehend what's going on. So that that's one thing that I can definitely say. And so it's just something that you can just read right through. Like you're not going to be bored. You're, it's not going to be too, mm -hmm. you know, like overly, uh, you know, full of uh, stuff that is just like a little crazy for an average person to read. So I would definitely say right that. that. And I, I told Russ the same thing when I, when I read Appalachian Bigfoot, same yeah. thing. it's just a, it's a, a smooth read. It it's is just, a smooth read. So I appreciate you saying that. I mean, that yeah. was my belief originally was that I thought that if someone, you know, like say I said, what is Bigfoot? And there may be mm -hmm. five different things. I don't remember now how many I put in, maybe six and each one would be a page <clears throat> or less than a page. And I could have done a chapter on each, but I didn't mm -hmm. want to do that. What That wasn't the purpose. The purpose is for the average Joe that's out there trying to convince not the scientists because we have to do that on our own, mm -hmm. but to convince the public that there's a realistic chance that something may be out there. When they get to the end, I just hope that they say, well, you know, maybe. And, you know. and I think that's super important, Russ, mm -hmm. because I think, um, you know, it's just a great way of spreading the word. And like we were talking about before, giving information to people who wouldn't necessarily have that information. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. And of course, Dr. Russ Jones is in my book as well. They yep. <laughs> put influencer. He's kind enough to be part of that. Yeah. Big, big help with that. Yep. And you, so, you know, you can check, uh, Dr. Russ Jones and Brad Cannon out every week on yeah. the Untold Radio Network, Wide Open Research. Yeah. They've got, they're on all the social media outlets. Yeah. Um, I have the West Virginia have, Bigfoot page. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's a Bigfoot doc on Twitter. Yeah, thebigfootdoc.com mm -hmm. is my website. And of course, Bigfoot yep. doc is on Twitter as well. And you can find us uh, on the Untold Radio Network as well. Yeah. So we appreciate all you guys. This was great. This is such a fun episode. I just yep. just love it. And th Russ, thank you again for, for being thank part of Thank you guys for having me. And hanging out with us for, for a little while. And uh, is there anything else you want to share? Nope. We love you, Dr. Russ. Can't wait to see you soon. Love you guys too. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>